Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the excellent Keith Boone, informatics adept at Audacious Inquiry LLC. Keith, has two decades of standards development and implementation, and more than a decade of standards leadership experience. He represents AI to health level seven, integrating the healthcare enterprise and diverse other bodies, developing health IT standards and implementation guidelines. He brings his experience in natural language processing, information retrieval, machine learning, XML, and health IT standards to augment AI's product offerings and in standards development and training to assist regional, state, and national initiatives in raising the bar for health information exchange. We hit a lot of hot buttons and buzzwords in Keith's intro, and it really is is no short of really what he does and what he's an expert at. So if you've struggled or have been looking to make an impact in this area, stay tuned because we're going to be having some really great discussions. So Keith, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate being with you. Absolutely. So you could have done a lot, right? I mean, you're, you're a whiz at AI and, and, and all of the future talk. That's your present. But you decided healthcare out of all industries. Why? So I originally got started in this as, uh, you know, I'm a software developer. I write computer code. Yep. And I had 20 years of experience in software before I ever even touched healthcare. So I, I spent about a decade in natural language processing software for a company that built spelling, grammar, other NLP tools for a lot of large software vendors, including Microsoft. So I've had code that's used by not just millions, but hundreds of millions. I think I looked up today, Microsoft Office is used by 1.2 billion people. And the spelling correction in there still has lines of code I wrote. Nice. Um, that's pretty cool, by the way. It is. It is cool. So in about 2001, I, I joined Dictaphone, which is now Nuance, and I began mm-hmm. on not working in natural language processing software for healthcare. And they quickly got me engaged in healthcare standards because previously I had been working with XML standards and been involved in some of the W3C, uh, World Wide Web Consortium work on XML standards. And so they got me engaged there. And I quickly realized how what I was doing in the healthcare standard space could not only affect the lives of hundreds of millions of people, but also like not just like put a red underline under a misspelled word in your resume, but maybe save a life. And I realized mm-hmm. I, ever was, I wasn't ever going back to pure software development. What had been a profession now was just became a calling. What I do today is so much more important than making sure that Somebody's resume is letter perfect. <laughs> and super cool transition and, and how it happened. Now you're, you're impacting lives rather than just words on paper. But you know what? In healthcare, we've got data, we've got documents, we've got a lot of things that need scale. And that's something that you've been able to do effectively. Maybe you could talk to us about what you believe needs to be on the minds of healthcare leaders today as it relates to software and, and, and these standards that you're used to uh, developing? So part of what's happening right now around scaling is moving away from 
a document-oriented focus into having a much more granular focus, so through APIs for access to healthcare data, especially something called Fast Health Information Resources from HL7. So these days, every EHR that you get has access to clinical documents. That's part of the certification program that our federal government has put together. But now you also, through those same products, can, as a patient, use mobile or web-based applications, or the, or the products have the capability to let patients use mobile or web-based application to get access to their healthcare data. Now, the challenge is that this actually needs to be set up in healthcare practices. So there's this Office of the National Coordinator, or ONC for short, that's an agency that reports to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. They recently did a report on how many of these EHR systems actually support APIs or have a certified product out there that has an API capability. And so 80% of the hospitals today across the country and where I live, 100%, and about two-thirds of non-hospital physicians have these APIs like built in already. Mm -hmm. So my doctor's office has this capability for both the specialists that I go see as well as my personal physician. And so one of the challenges we have now and what I think is really important for medical leaders is focusing on trying to get those access to those APIs in patient hands. So not just it's in the EHR, but it's actually being used through these standards. So in my particular space, what we're doing with this is to try to lead the efforts in the standards organization. So one of the first things I did when I joined AI, which I've only been here a month, was the organization joined yeah. Health Level 7 and integrating the healthcare enterprise so that we could continue to lead in these efforts and make it easier for healthcare providers to take advantage of the APIs and then use them not only with their current systems that have the capabilities, but also to support the legacy interfaces that some of the older systems that they're still having to work with are still using. And then also look at how to move this right into the bleeding edge of precision medicine, where this is now also enabling patients to have access to the data. And then they can turn around and share it with others in a program called Sync for Science with medical researchers so that researchers can now use the data to do precision medicine. So that's, from my perspective, focusing on how your organization is rolling out and using these APIs to provide better care for patients is, I think, one of the most important things that is top of my mind. For sure. So it's about interoperability? Yes. yes. Okay. So this, the, the APIs enable information to be exchanged from, say, the hospital I might go to and my own personal physician, for example. And so you know, as soon as I show up in the hospital, they can see that, oh, well, he's been admitted to a hospital. That doesn't just happen automatically, right? There's got to be some data that gets transmitted, and both systems at either end have to be able to understand it. Yep, absolutely. And so the thing that is sort of from my knowledge, and, and maybe we could take advantage of your expertise here today, uh, Keith, what seems to be becoming the standard is FHIR, the FHIR API. Yep. You've Can got you talk it. to us a little bit more about that for the folks listening that aren't highly technical? Why is this important and how can they approach it if they're on the provider side or even on the industry side? So 
we've had standards for for decades that allow us to exchange data between these systems. When we started, those standards fit into a several hundred page book. And we've now gotten to the point now where a single implementation guide can be several hundred pages or even bigger. Wow. So it becomes really, really challenging for developers to work with this data. And every implementation guide is built on a different foundation. So what FIRE does is it goes back to the basics and says, okay, there's 50, maybe 100, maybe more different kinds of data that you have to work with. Things like problems, things like allergies, things like medications, things like lab results, et cetera. Let's look at each one of these individually and come up with a way to represent them that's going to be easy for the software developer to understand and use with today's modern technology. Let's not focus on stuff that was written for 80-column punch card format, but focus on the mm -hmm. web, web-based RESTful services, so basically the same stuff that you use today when you're looking at the web the computer uses to get access to the information. And so these are the, the resources. So fast health care information resources or interoperability resources. That's the resource component. So we now have a way to represent a medication that can be used for reporting on clinical information. It can be used to deal with medical claims. It can be used in an electronic prescription. It could be used for other not strictly healthcare related things, but things that are closely associated, like getting a disability determination. And so we started out by doing this with the HL7 clinical document architecture, and pieces of the document became very standardized, but you still had to have a whole document. There's still mm -hmm. a lot of data, and you couldn't get to the grains that you needed. But FireDose, um... it makes those grains of data accessible. Interesting. So is HL7 part of the FIRE framework? So Health Level 7 is two things. One, it's an organization that creates healthcare standards. Mm -hmm. Two, it's the name by which it's most commonly implemented standard, HL7 version 2, is known as. So HL7 built FIRE, created FIRE. It was actually originated from uh, by a fellow by the name of Graham Grieve, who... Hmm has been working on it for, oh, I don't know, since probably around 2011. So for about oh, wow. seven years or so, a long time. It's new to us because it's actually gotten to a level where it's, it's pervasive and physicians are so much more aware of standards now because meaningful use, they had to become aware of standards. For sure. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, cool information here as we as we peel back the layer on, on terms that, that we, we all hear, but do we really understand them? So Keith has is, is given us a, a good one-on-one lesson here on where do these things come from and how are they useful? So as you do your work in this space, Keith, what would you say uh, one of the, the setbacks that you've had or maybe even the industry has had and what we learned from it? So when I first got into this field, the company I worked with was trying to develop automated coding and data mining tools for healthcare documents, the way that we communicate today through documents. Sort of like the Comprehend Medical Technology, Amazon just recently did their big press release around. So we built this system. It was able to go through and identify problems, meds, allergies, procedures, other sorts of stuff. 
And we even did a study of the accuracy. We reached a point where we could pull this information out of these documents as accurately as a human who was coding this stuff for claims. So the challenge was we couldn't explain how the system had come to a conclusion about what codes to use. So it couldn't argue for itself. So even though we built a system that could do effectively the same job much more efficiently, it was missing some critical components and it couldn't learn from its mistakes. So now understand, this was also about 15 years ago. So it was way ahead of its time. And, and back then, nobody would believe that a computer could do jobs like this. Now you mm -hmm. have Amazon, you have IBM, you have all these others having demonstrated. So it's much more believable technology. But when you're building these systems where the computer's doing so much work that used to be done by a human, it has to be able to sort of explain how these conclusions were reached and how we got to this particular statement that's showing up on the screen. Otherwise, it's not going to be believable. Somebody who's looking at it isn't going to understand how it got there, might have come to a different conclusion. And you also have to then be able to have that information be fed back in so that that goes into sort of the next round of decisions that the, the computer winds up making. It's interesting because while you could develop something that the output is what you want, you still have to be able to have believability and an understanding of how it got there. If you can't put that together, then really it doesn't work. Well, I'm going to put it more simply and in terms that I'm sure your listeners will understand. If you can't take the outcomes that occurred and feed them back into the process, the process will never improve. Makes sense. Fascinating. So now you, you the time has come where where there are more more uh, companies and, and, and systems doing this type of work. What would you say one of your proudest experiences has been to date with the work you're doing? So there's the thing I like to talk to with my mother, and that's that in the work that I've done thus far, I've helped advance standards. And through those standards, the EHR systems that are now being used and which impact hundreds of millions of people in the country, including in Florida, where my mother lives, so that they can now get an electronic copy of a document in a standard format that describes their most recent medical encounter. So that's really kind of cool. In the geek world, it's really cool, man. <laughs> you know, we had two versions of that standard at the same time, the old version and the new one. And so back in like 2015, when ONC was trying to update the standards, they ran into this challenge of wanting to have both of them working in the new certified systems at the same time. So this is something that a Gartner analyst, Wes Richel, called asynchronous backwards compatibility. And they said, well, the system's going to have to do both at the same time. But that would have been a nightmare for every EHR vendor and also the users of those EHRs in existence, because there'd be a lot of burden and costs you'd be doing on producing the same document twice, so just twice as much processing, and not a whole lot of value. It's, it's to support backwards compatibility. It's yeah. something that eventually you, you want to turn off. So mm -hmm. I managed to get a project started in HL7 to update the standard to support this asynchronous backwards compatibility. And we finished it in six weeks. So it was a record for updating a standard in HL7 at the time. I'm not even sure that it's been broken yet, but one of the things that we did at the same time That's was hook our work into the process and improve the process and pave the way for others to advance standards in HL7 rapidly to meet the same kinds of needs. We had to do this in a 60-day comment period. 
right? So it needed to happen fast. And we managed it and it got named in the, the new updated standard got named in the 2015 certification role. Awesome. Now so that, that is a, <laughs> I love it, man. It's, you don't have an appreciation when you're not spending the time in front of the code and thinking about it from a perspective of, of a physician or a clinician managing their EMR, how it all happens and why, and, and you know, the stories behind the trenches Appreciate you sharing that. So next time you go clicking through your EMR or you're working on some some project, just know that uh, Keith was probably one of the guys responsible for the fact that it works uh, <laughs> and it's in place right now. <laughs> That's wonderful, Keith. So getting close to the end of the interview here, and I think we're going to have to do a part two because this was fun. It was educational. This is a part of the podcast where we go through a lightning round. So I'm going to ask you five questions. This is all about the 101 of Keith Boone, what it takes to be effective in, in healthcare IT. So I've got five questions, okay? Lightning round. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? So it's really pretty simple. You have to focus actually on the outcome you want to impact. So when you're measuring quality, you have things about structure, things about your process, and things about your, your outcome. Structure and process lead to outcomes, but they aren't the outcome themselves. And you can game structure and process, but you can't game the outcome. So focus on the outcome. Love that, man. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? So we often have what we call a solution in search of a problem. That's the thing you want to avoid. Don't think you've got a great solution, then go look for the problem. Look for the problems and then come up with solutions for the problems. And that's what's going to get the most value to the consumer. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? Two ways. One, I personally participate in technology advancements routinely several times a week. And then I make sure to engage the people in my organization in those activities directly and make sure that they're focused, they're paying attention to them, and then bringing that material back into the organization. Make sure you've got somebody who's actually focused and out in front and then bringing that back. That's great. What's the one area of focus that drives everything in your organization? I would have to say making sure we deliver value. In everything we do, we have to be looking to the future, but the future is like three years from now. And what I have to deliver to my customer is three, six, nine, 12 months from now. So focusing on how I can plan for the future and yet still bring value today, not build the greatest, latest and greatest widget, whatever, but making somebody wait three years for it to actually show up. And then be the wrong thing. Powerful. What, what would you say your number one success habit is? My number one success habit? I'm curious. I spend a lot of time reading stuff that doesn't necessarily seem relevant to what I'm doing at the time. And then somewhere along the way, some stupid fact that I knew <laughs> or some silly little thing that I read or some two pieces of something fit together in a remarkable way. and that enables me to do things that other people can't because I've managed to put two and two together and come up with five. Love that. How do you recall this stuff? Are you, uh, do you have a photographic memory? Do you journal? So I do write down a lot of stuff. I find mm -hmm. that the act of writing is something that makes it possible for me to remember things. Yeah. But more importantly, I know how to look things up. After you write them. Well, not just general. after I write them, I know, oh, yeah, I wrote about 
oh, there was some book somewhere. <laughs> oh, let's see, what was that? It turns out it was How Physicians Think, where I was reading a particular story about a patient who had, as it turned out, celiac disease. But the whole book itself was sort of just ways that, that people think. And I didn't remember the title of the book. I couldn't remember that it was written by Malcolm Gladwell, but I knew how to get to the information Yeah. because I remembered I bought it at the same time I bought Blink. <laughs> nice, nice. And it was a two-for-one deal on Amazon. And sure enough, <laughs> they were selling them side by side still. That's funny. So just being able to figure out how to access the information. The information is there. You just have to be really, really tenacious to go look for it. And often it will eventually pop up and, and then you can use it. I love that. That's great. One of the things that I've been working on is, you know, I've always journaled. But to your point, Keith, I've been terrible at, at going back and finding my notes. So I've, I've, I've developed a different That's why I started a blog. <laughs> Because my blog is accessible via Google. <laughs> That's another way to do it. I love it, man. And it's recalling these things. And, and um, there's this, this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. He says, every scholar, every genius out there, doesn't matter who they were. There was one point where they picked up a book, read it, were enlightened, went forward and just totally forgot where and what they read and they never got that idea back again. And that's why it's important for you to write things <laughs> and be able to recall them. And you seem to do both. So uh, kudos to you, Keith. Uh, love that you shared that with us. So what book would you recommend to the listeners? How Physicians Think. Hmm. And that's why I was looking it up because you asked the question, what book would I recommend? And I thought, well, what was the book that had the biggest impact on me in understanding what healthcare software needs to be able to do. And so how physicians think talks a lot about what physicians go through in terms of the diagnostic process. And you know, interestingly enough, I spent 20 years in software and I, I had a three-year diversion in hardware. You become a really good diagnostician when you're working with computers because you always have to figure out why isn't it doing what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. What that book helped me to learn was how that cognitive process that physicians go through is, is very much like similar cognitive processes that other people who work with very complex things go through. And that it wasn't magical in terms of how they operated. I could actually take what they did and map it to the kinds of things I do when I'm trying to figure out a problem and the kinds of tools that I use. And that gave me an excellent way to make their world a little bit more understandable to me so that I could produce things that would be a little bit more useful to them. Because if I could map it back to how I did and what I was doing, then I could design solutions that I would know would work for me that would also work for them. They're humans. Love it. Great recommendation. How Physicians Think. And uh, folks, you know this very well. If you want a copy of the entire transcript. And uh, the How Physicians yeah. Think is Jerome Groupman. Jerome what was the last name? Groupman, G-R-O-O-P-M-A-N. There you have it, guys and gals. Jerome Groupman, How Physicians Think, OutcomesRocket.Health. Just type it in there and look, look up Keith Boone. It's uh, Keith and B-O-O-N-E. Type them in the search bar. You'll see a copy of the transcript, all of the syllabus we put together for you, as well as a link to his work, his blog. 
and uh, also this book that he just recommended. Keith, this has been a pleasure, my friend. I'd love if you could just uh, share a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could follow you or get in touch. Okay. So closing thought, we are sort of reaching that point with technology where it is making our lives better. I know that a lot of physicians think, oh, this is, this is such a burden. And understandably, it is challenging to have to learn new things. At the same time, think about the way that healthcare was 50 years ago and where we're at and what we can do today. It really, as it turns out, is a lot better. And then the second part of your question, you can find me at motorcycleguide.blogspot.com. And there's a whole story behind that as well that's on the very first post that explains uh, why my blog is called Motorcycle Guy. Um, <laughs> I love it. I'm going to have to read it. And you can also find me on Twitter at, at motorcycle underscore guy. There's the motorcycle theme again. Yep. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I needed a Twitter handle to go with the blog. I, it turned into a personal brand back before I knew anything about personal branding. Love that. But it fit. So That's cool. That's cool. So folks, there you have it. Great discussion with uh, Keith Boone. Delivering value, being curious. Make sure you're able to appreciate how, how managing healthcare data has changed today. I really loved our conversation, Keith, and uh, excited to share it with the listeners. Thanks again for uh, spending time with us. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more. 